We know in John chapter 7, verse 53, that everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So there's your, your transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8. Early in the morning, verse 2, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her at the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might accuse him or have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Father, again, we ask for your authority. We ask for your spirit. And we ask for your teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. What a marvelous place to have that story emerge. I believe chronologically it's right where it needs to be. I'll explain in just a moment why that would even be a question but what a perfect place, right after chapter 7. I love how the Bible does that. Chapter 8 comes after chapter 8 before. Something remarkably prophetic, something that was promised. In fact, if you look back at Isaiah chapter 44, or just listen, God said through the prophet, Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour out water on the thirsty. Literally, I will pour out water on him who is thirsty. And streams on the dry ground, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, and my to Israel, not to us Gentiles. Well, what's interesting is verse 5 says, this one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob, this one and that one. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. So you got, got someone who gets tattoos. And will name Israel's name with honor. My friends, this is a promise to Jews and Gentiles alike. This is a promise to those who call on the name of Jacob as their forebearer. This is also on those who just simply say, I am the Lord's. I belong to the Lord. Well, back in the story before us, verse 2 says again, early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. Less than 24 hours earlier, Jesus spoke this promise. He actually owned the promise of Isaiah. When he said in verse 37 of chapter 7 on the last day of the feast, he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus wasn't spoken with a sigh, but as a surge. As the Lord said, whoever's thirsty, his is the voice like the sound of many waters, Revelation 1.15. And what he offers there in verses 37 and 38 is nothing less than gushing rivers of living water. That's the, that's the literal translation there. Gushing rivers of living water. Ongoing, ever-flowing, never-ending torrents. And we talked about this Wednesday night. Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will continually guide you. He will satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And I think perhaps when our lives are scorched, we need to sink into these promises. We need to come back and hear again to soak in the assurance of Jesus that what he offers you is not a well that goes dry. It's not water that is temporary or occasional. 
and it's constant, ongoing, ever-flowing. The, the promise of his spirit. And as a matter of fact, if, if you're one who would say, my faith experience is more like a trickle than a river. Well, then I would say to you, you need to hear the invitation again. Maybe you missed this point, that the invitation of Jesus is perpetual as he says, let him come to me. We've talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem. People think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a one-time thing that sets you up above all other people, and that's it. You get one per life. I'm sorry, that's not what Jesus said. Keep coming to me. Keep drinking. I will keep pouring out. It is a constant gushing flow of his spirit, and he'll give us as much as we desire. In terms of, of power, you already have his spirit, by the way. Can't get more of his spirit. You already have his spirit. If you believe in Jesus, his spirit indwells you. But there is more that he will give in terms of, of the fruit of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit, the strength, the comfort, the compassion of the spirit. As much as you want. Because life in the spirit, again, is not a singular event. It is a decided, deliberate, daily walk. Which is why Paul says, think about this, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What's the difference? I say I live by the Spirit. Then every day, every step is a walk in the Spirit of God. Every step is an opportunity to drink living water to the overflow. And too many of us in this fellowship, in the church, in our Christian lives... We get dry too often. That's not his fault. That's not because he doesn't offer enough. Let him keep coming to me and keep drinking. And as much as I'm willing to receive is how much Jesus is willing to fill my life and my faith. He said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Now that would get my attention. I don't know about you. But if you're listening to some pastor teacher who says, now listen, evil people. If you, though you're evil, messed up people, know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Father, he says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now think about that. How many kids ask a dad or a mom for something one time and then let it go? If you don't know the answer to that, it's because you haven't had kids yet. They ask, and then they ask again, and then they ask a third time. And then they ask over and over and over and over and over until finally they wear you down. And I can tell you, seven kids down the line, I'm worn down by the first request now. All they got to do is ask once. Like, yeah, just do it. Kids will ask again and again and again. The children coming to the Father, ask him. Keep asking him. Keep coming to Jesus. Keep drinking. With this caveat, if you are coming to be personally filled, you're going to limit the flow by what you can contain. Now, that actually makes overflowing. The whole idea of overflowing is that we are poured into to be poured out of. As Jesus said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? You're going to overflow. And the flow of the rivers of living water, the flow of his spirit is to witness to this lost world, is to minister to one another in church fellowships. And as far as I'm concerned, the more the merrier. Now, the phrase living water, as Jesus pours in living water, causes it then to flow out like a, a, an eternal spring, flow out from us, pouring in that we may pour out. We keep coming to him, we keep drinking, and he continues to pour in and flow out of his spirit. That's the dynamic here. And this phrase, living water, appears seven times in the Bible. This is a complete offer that he's making to you and to me. Seven times in the scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. To hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Jeremiah 17, 13, the Lord, the hope of Israel, says all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. That's the second time. Third time, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward, and it's spoken over and over. And then Jesus comes along. And one-on-one -on -one to this woman at the well in Samaria, Jacob's well, he says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then the woman responds, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you give or, or get that living water? And down in verse 13, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Finally, in John chapter 7, verse 38, back closer to, we're going to get back to chapter 8, but John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He speaks these words the night before he's confronted with another woman on a day that dawned hot and dry there in Jerusalem. Verse 3 of chapter 8, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Before we deal with this horrific scene, we should ask this question. Does the story even belong in the Bible? Should it even be here at all? I mean, I get it. I get it. The compassion and the tenderness and the wisdom with which Jesus handles the situation makes this story a favorite, especially in the church today. This is a go-to. So many sermons preached about this particular story. So many turning to this story just to see Jesus interacting with someone in an absolute nightmare situation and how beautiful his grace is to her. And we love the story. The problem is many early manuscripts don't include it. Let's just be honest, it's not there. Now, when I say early manuscripts, realize that that's not the earliest of the early manuscripts. They're just the earliest ones that we have, and many of them don't contain the story. Sometimes the early manuscripts aren't even as accurate as some of the later ones that reach back to the ones prior to the early manuscripts. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. But many of them don't include it. Some people look at that and say, well, it's not there, so we need to take it out. Second problem with this is the language. And if you're a Greek scholar, so Mark, you could, you could tell me about this one. You know that the language suddenly changes. It's not John. Or at least it doesn't sound like John. It's like these, these 10 or 11 verses, suddenly someone else is writing because the, the choices of the words aren't used anywhere else in John or anywhere else in John's letters. They, they just, they're not words that John used. The writing style, in fact, you know, it's interesting, the writing style sounds a whole lot more like Luke. The phrases used here are phrases Luke uses. So it depends to the side. In others, it's set aside in very suspicious brackets. And that's chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, some take this story that happened on this morning, and because it sounds so much like Luke, and it reads like Luke, and it has words familiar to and used by Luke, they put it in Luke. Luke chapter 21, verse 38, starting right there, this story picks up. Uh, according to some, that's where it should go. Then it's legitimate, but it's just in the wrong book. Some place it after John chapter 7, verse 36, so that it happens before Jesus crying out the offer of living water. I, I don't think that's a good place for it. Some put it after verse 44. Some put it after chapter 21, verse 25 as a tag at the end. Clearly, they don't know where it goes. I think the best place is just right where it is. Well, but Rick, with all this stuff you're telling me, well, well okay, so should we just skip to verse 12 and be done with it? I mean, if, if there are all these questions about it, should we just erase it from the story and move on? And I say, hold your paper cutter there, editor-in-chief. Whoa, wait a minute. There's something you need to know. That First of all, there were no chapters or verses, right? 
That was added much, much later. Over a, a millennia later, chapters and verses started to be added in so people could find the verses a little more easily. And what we had originally, both in Hebrew and in Greek, was continuous scrolls of text. So you get the beginning of this there. What's really interesting is in those early manuscripts, those ancient documents that lack this story, many of them leave a large blank space between chapter 7, verse 52, and chapter 8, verse 12, as if something was omitted or erased. It's unusual. It's not typical of the Scriptures. St. Augustine claimed that this story was deleted because of a moral fear or a prudish concern among early believers that it might show tolerance for adultery. So take it out because it might make the whole act of adultery or thoughts of adultery or the behavior of adultery might make it too easy for people. Just remove the story. What's interesting is you look all the way back to a man named Papias and Papias was a contemporary of John's. And Papias actually relates a very similar story, similar in almost every way, except that he lists multiple sins that this woman is accused of. The rest parallels John very closely. Furthermore, Jesus himself seems to refer to the incident. If you look in chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus says, I am he who testifies about, oh, that's verse 18. Verse 15 and 16. 15 says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Wow, that, that applies. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. So there's, there's a, as if he's addressing a judgment there where they made a flesh judgment, but he made a spirit judgment. Wow, that follows the story perfectly. Or verse 34 where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And truly, we have a picture of a slave in those first 11 verses. Down in verse 46, Jesus says, which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And I'll show you in the story where Jesus speaks some remarkable Torah law. He's speaking truth. So here's a theory for you. And I don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you Rick's theory on this story and on how it came to be here and why it's here and why there are questions about it. Here's my theory. This is just an idea. This is not doctrine. Don't go out and tell someone, well, Pastor Rick said this, and, and, and then they'll say, well, he's an idiot because of this, this, and this. It may be true. I may be an idiot because of this, this, and this. But th so here's my theory. Luke and John no doubt knew each other and knew each other well. Might Luke possibly, after finishing his gospel, Luke, we know, was an investigator. He had notes. He had investigations. Might he, after finishing his gospel, have come upon the story or perhaps still had the story in his arsenal but was not moved by the Holy Spirit to put it in Luke? But later said to John, do you remember this? Luke himself probably wouldn't even have been there that morning. John was. Probably. Maybe Luke handed it over to John, and John, under the inspiration of the living water, put it right in the chronologically correct place, as written by Luke, but in his gospel. Now, some might say, hey, that sounds pretty good. And others might say, Rick, you're really reaching. Okay, whatever. I said it was a theory. Whatever the case, this much I know, there is enough evidence of this story to keep it in the Bible, even if it has to be in brackets that this rings true of Jesus. That the early church had a sense of these things. And this is something Jesus would have done. There's nothing in this story that contradicts the grace and mercy and righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So I believe it absolutely stands, even as she's standing now in the center of the court. Verse 20 in the chapter tells us it's the treasury, which is probably the women's court. That's where we believe the treasury was, the, the, the offering boxes there in the women's court. And it was a location that Jesus often went to teach in the women's court so they knew right where to find him. Verse 4, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. 
Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And it is a dirty, disgusting, despicable thing that they do. Can we all be in agreement that what the scribes and Pharisees do here is, is sinful? To throw her in front of him like that. It reeks of a setup, these skeevy scribes and peeping Pharisees. How'd they catch her in the act? They had to be aware of this. They had to know what was going on. They had to be ready to pounce and to arrest her, knowing enough about this affair in the very act, and then to exploit her to entrap Jesus. And I'm not probably saying anything that you haven't felt if you've read the story before. This is just so wrong. This is just so unfair. And immediately we side against the scribes and the Pharisees, and well, we should. But let me ask the question. Did the law require such women? Don't you love the phraseology there? The law commands us to stone such women, this kind of person. By the way, that is a human anomaly. That is not the truth that there are certain people who are just bad and there are certain people who are pretty good. No, we all just bad. <laughs> We're all sinners. We have all violated the righteousness of God in one way or another. We do not have the right to look down on this woman or anyone else caught in sin. What we do have the right to do is love with compassion and offer forgiveness and hope in Jesus. I didn't say tolerate sin. I hope you didn't hear that. But I said have compassion for because that's where we've been and sometimes that's still where we are. But did the law require such women to be stoned to death? Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Yes, there is a death penalty for adultery. For the adulterer, and the adulteress together. Did I miss him in one of the verses? Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. What's interesting in the law is that a married woman or a betrothed woman who was caught in an adulterous affair was sentenced, or the, the sentence was stoning. There's nothing that says anything about a single woman. Now, even saying that, I'm not saying, so, hey, have a field day. But there's a caveat there where there would be punishment, but not necessarily stoning involving single people. I may come back to that thought. These were laws of deterrence. And we talked about this through Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So much of the laws were serious. They were severe. They were right. They were true. And they were there to deter the people from ever doing them. And we know this to be true when you start to lessen punishments, when you lower sentences for any crime is simply, you know, life in prison. Well, you've just taken away deterrence. Rick, are you for the death penalty? Well, it is in the Noahic covenant, which was a covenant God made with all people, and it's never gone away. I am, because the Bible is supportive of capital punishment, the death penalty, when the conviction is legitimate for certain crimes, murder being one of them. But I, adultery, so Rick, would you stone such women? Well, I, no. <laughs> That's not my point. But these laws of deterrence were here to keep Israel pure, to keep adultery out of the cultural mix. We have no such laws. We have no such deterrence in the church today, which perhaps is why it's such a problem in the church today. Still, it is fair to ask, why was the law so harsh? Because the law of God can only condemn understand that. When you set the law of God down in front of humanity, all the law can do, perfect as it is, absolutely righteous and true as it is, it can only condemn us because we can't keep it. We've been over this a few times. 
But the idea that I can just be good enough to slide into heaven is, is a falsehood. God himself is the standard of righteousness. And with the sole exception of Jesus Christ, all people adulterate the law. All people, after 5, verse 20, the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But these scribes and Pharisees could care less about the law. They weren't interested in justice or righteousness or a man would be standing there alongside the woman. Verse 6, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Ironically, get this, the one thing that the scribes and Pharisees did that the woman needed more than anything else in her life was bring her to Jesus. They were doing it to condemn. They were doing it to catch him. They were doing what she needed. As difficult as this scene must have been for her, this woman needed Jesus desperately. More ironically, the leaders thought they had him. This is the one. This is what will take him down. Because if he condemns her according to the law, all those sinners who love him so much, oh, they'll hate him now. There goes all that mercy he talks about. If he'll stone this woman, if he'll call for that, if he sides with the law, oh, they'll see he's no friend of sinners at all. But if he clears her rather than condemns her, he's in violation of the law because the law calls for her stoning. A law that he claimed to keep, not only keep, I think he said somewhere that he said he'd fulfill it. So he says he fulfills the law, but if he fulfills the law, he condemns the woman, and if he condemns the woman, all those sinners, they'll be gone, and his ministry fails. They set him up. So he stooped down. Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground, this is the key verse of the entire story. I didn't used to think so. I always thought it was interesting. I always tried to explain it. This is the key verse in my mind of the entire story. The King James translation adds there in verse 6 that he stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. As though all of their accusations and condemnations we're just going right over his head. Not paying attention to them. And by the way, this is the only time in all four Gospels that Jesus writes. What did he write? Well, there's an old church tradition that he wrote down Jeremiah 13, or 17, verse 13, which I read to you earlier. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Now, that's one, you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Some have suggested that he wrote against the leaders because the word he uh, bent down to write is katagraphane, which has a negative connotation, writing against. So maybe that's it. He was writing like the names of the women they had been with or the names of their particular sins or just enough that was making them very uncomfortable. Possibly. Here's the thing. The reason this verse is so significant is not because of what we don't know. And we don't know what he was writing. And we can make all kinds of guesses and have a lot of fun with that, but we have no idea what it is exactly that Jesus wrote. All we're told is that he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground and it remains, again, the key verse. Why? Why doesn't John tell us? Because here's the point. Here's the obvious point in the proceedings. Jesus is delaying. He's delaying the proceedings. The Lord will do that sometimes. The Lord will cause for a pause. I call it the pause of grace. 
He will cause a pause in the proceedings of our life, even our sin choices. He will pause long enough that we can think about what we are doing. This beloved, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is, one, is like one day. So God's got time. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that patience of the Lord is not only for this age, it is often in the moment when he is patient with you, patient with me, setting up a pause in our behavioral schemes. And listen to me, this pause of grace especially applies the moment I'm ready to unfairly judge someone else. What do you mean? I mean the grace that we see here, and I've never seen this before, the grace that we see here as Jesus writes on the ground is for the scribes and the Pharisees. It's to give them pause as to what they're about to do what they're calling for, and how malicious their behavior truly is, Jesus ignores it for a few minutes, looks down, lets them stew for a bit. And in verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, so they're, they're getting a little agitated here. He straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, more pause of grace. He adds a little word, gives them a little Torah, and then goes right back to writing. Team verse 7 says, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So what's the idea here? What is Jesus saying? Well, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, at her. That means the witnesses of the crime must throw the stones. That's Torah law. That's the way it was to work. You witness a crime and you call someone on it and it calls for stoning, you get to be the first to pick up stones and throw them. Why would God do that? It's the pause of grace. Do I really want to see this through? Am I so convinced of the evil of this person that I'm going to throw the stones that kill them? Once again, we see in the law of God this gracious deterrence, this thinking it through, this, this pause of grace. The witnesses had to be the first to throw a stone, which promoted judicial certainty. You needed to know for sure because you have just become the executioner. You needed to pause and think about it. But Jesus also authoritatively adds something to Torah here. He says, he who is without sin among you. And the implication is that the witnesses must not be involved in or guilty of the same sin themselves. So if y'all aren't guilty of adultery, throw the first stone. And oldest to young, one by one, beginning with the older ones, which would tell younger, should tell younger people there's some wisdom there, there's some recognition there that is learned over many years. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. In the King James translation, verse 9 reads, when they heard it being convicted by conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. Convicted of conscience. Where? In the pause of grace. Pause of grace. Jesus riding on the ground, creating a gap in this story, not a gap in the narrative, in the story itself. There's this gap, this pause. There's this time that goes by where Jesus is not turning around and judging the scribes and Pharisees, which, by the way, he had every right to do. He could have taken them out one by one, calling out their sins and embarrassing them all. But he just pauses. He quotes scripture. He pauses again. Those who shamed the woman in an attempt to shame Jesus now leave and shame themselves, recognizing they have no grounds. But listen, in spite of their mean-spirited, hateful trap setting, Jesus not only has the heart of mercy for the woman, but again, a heart of mercy for these leaders. Have you ever thought about that? That the way he handled it allowed grace 
for the scribes and the Pharisees. I wonder if some of those find out. But let that sink in. Jude 22 and 23. And this is a word to all believers among us, especially when we've been believers long enough that we've kind of forgotten how bad it was before Jesus. Which, by the way, if that's you, just think about how you did last week. Okay. Jude 22 and 23 gives us this great, and I would put it in the category of a command, have mercy on some who are doubting. So if someone's doubting around you, questioning even criticizing your faith, have mercy. Have mercy. They don't know what you know. And then Jude continues, save others, snatching them out of the fire, which is a great phrase because the word snatching is harpazo, which is what? Rapturing them out of the fire. I get this picture in my mind of the rapture of the church happening and right as it's happening, we're still grasping to pull people along with us out of the fire, which means they're headed for hell. And then Jude continues, have some, on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So we hate sin, we despise sin, we abhor sin, but we love people. And we as saved sinners ourselves, as those who were dirty made righteous by the blood of Jesus ourselves, what can we but do but to reach down in and try to pull out as many people as we possibly can who are in the same wretched, messed up place? Did no one condemn you? You notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't ask her if she's guilty. He doesn't have to. He knows. She knows. But mercy doesn't need to hammer in the sin. Well, is it true then? Are you an adulteress? Caught in the act? Let's get it all out on the table. It's just you and me now. Where'd they go? Did no one condemn you? And she says to him, no one, Lord. Verse 11. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. And from now on, Sin no more. Wait, 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 what? What did he just say? I, I, I don't condemn you? Can you for a moment imagine how that felt for her? Imagine her heart's response. The worst day of her life just became her best day. The day she thought it was over. The day of her darkest shame where everybody found out what she had been hiding. Now she is set free. Her best day. She heard his words and immediately went, as Jesus said, from death to life in the pause of grace. I love that Jesus is never reactionary. After three, that he passed over the sins previously committed until redemption could happen. Though all those sins deserve judgment. He said, well, hold, hold on, pause of grace. Let's wait, let's wait until the cross. And then those who have trusted in me and believed in me can be saved along with those who trust and believe in me after the cross. It, it's an amazing pause of grace. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words tear up Torah to set her free. Because she did commit adultery. And so she, along with the man, granted the man wasn't there, but she was guilty enough for a stoning. So did Jesus violate Torah? And the answer is absolutely not. Because Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, he is to die, he who, who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. How many witnesses were left in the courtyard? None. And Jesus himself was not a witness of the fact. So he kept Torah. It's perfect. All the witnesses are gone. I can't condemn you. <laughs> In the pause of grace, any so-called witnesses had left the building. The law, as we said, condemns, but we, but it's because we can't keep it. But it is not, listen to me, it is not, listen to me, it is not the heart of God to condemn anyone. It's not his purpose. 
What, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. I don't take pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. But God is perfect. God is righteous. We've got to understand this about the grace of God through Jesus Christ is his grace never sidesteps the law, never violates his own righteousness. No, grace fulfills his righteousness, maintains his perfect law with perfect love. That's Jesus on the cross paying for it all. So that righteousness is covered, is paid for, and grace becomes our result. And that's the Lord. But what immediately follows this act of holy grace? This moment where he says, I do not condemn. I want to deal with something here this morning. Um, prayed a lot about this. It's very simple. Jesus said, go and no longer sin. And grace, grace empowers sin like nothing else. Empowers freedom from sin. <laughs> Like nothing else. It's funny that I slip on that. That's the way some Christians view it. Grace empowers sin. No. Grace is freedom from sin. Grace empowers against sin like nothing else. What do you mean? It's not just a clean slate. Grace is not just, oh, good, I get a do-over. Change in us. It, it, in fact, let me put it this way. The pause of grace inserts a recess into my sin nature. Suddenly, God's pause of grace causes me a pause in my sin nature, a beautiful, God-given, Christ-purchased. Even if there is a call from that place of sin, come on back, try this again. But I've been set free. Grace is empowering against sin. But we need to take a grace pause right now. Jesus said, go and sin no more. And the painful sin in this story is the sin of adultery. Let's call it what it is, folks. The sin of adultery. Adultery is sin. Now, this is the tough part of the teaching, so please stay with me. There are several things that adultery does that I want to address this morning. And my hope is not and my intent is not if you have committed adultery in times past or been engaged with adultery, even in times recent, my point is not to shame, it's not to hurt, it's not to kick you when you're down. But I'll tell you what, if you right now are on the verge of an adulterous relationship, my hope is this stops you right now. Why would you say that to a bunch of Christians? Well, I'll tell you in just a second. The painful sin in this story is adultery. Listen to me, six things I want you to jot down if, if you've got notes, and I'll do this quickly. Six things about adultery that I think sin is always dressed up as something beautiful and enticing and, and better. And it looks like the answer, and it looks like, yeah, that's where I want to be, and that's where I feel comforted. But adultery wounds the adulterer. Understand that adultery is not just sexual sin. Adultery is lying, it's coveting, it's theft, it's a murder of relationships, and if you're a Christian, adultery is taking God's name in vain because you sit under the name of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian, and that name becomes vanity to me when I violate it like that. It also involves lust. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Do you realize that in the path to adultery, pornography typically is front and center? That in studies that have been done, that men and women who commit adultery are already deeply into pornography. Because what pornography does is tell you what you have isn't quite good enough. What you have isn't what you see. And Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Now, if we all followed that to the letter, we'd all be blind. You know, he also said later, if your right hand makes you, you know, stumble, cut it off. We'd all be like stumpy the blind. 
Pornography isn't quite so bad. No, it's exactly as bad as it was before, and so is pornography, and so is lust, and so is all of this sin of the heart. Jesus said, it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Adultery wounds the adulterer, but the adulterer often can't see it. I, I have a, a, a dear friend who had, in his pre-Christian life, multiple times committed adultery. And, and his words on this, he said, you just, you're not thinking. It, it's like you're in the eye of the hurricane, but you can't see the hurricane. So you're in the midst of this absolute train wreck of a situation, but all you see is the moment with this other person until the moment is over and you step outside of the moment and all of a sudden you're back in the, in the wreckage. Adultery wounds, deeply wounds the adulterer. And of course you would know this, adultery wounds, number two, the wronged spouse. Which is why Jesus gave the release clause for this particular sin. He said in Matthew 19, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It's the caveat where Jesus says if there's an affair in a relationship, then you have the opportunity, you have the right to step outside that. That covenant has been violated of marriage and you have the right as the offended partner to walk away. You can divorce your wife, husband, or you can absolutely hates divorce. Why would he offer that as an option out? Because adultery so heavily wounds the wrong spouse. I'm talking about the wrong spouse. We've already said it wounds the adulterer, but it wounds the wrong spouse. It, it hurts the heart so definitely. How do you know it's not going to happen again? How can you look into the person's eyes and, and be sure? Don't lose me here. There is a way, <laughs> but it makes it awfully difficult. It's a wound. And by the way, when Jesus gives this clause, this sexual immorality clause in a marriage, it is not a free pass to get out. In fact, adultery is not just grounds for divorce. As we see Jesus even here dealing with the adulterous woman, adultery is also grounds for the pause of grace. It is an opportunity for the wounded spouse to love like Jesus, to forgive. And by the way, wounded spouses, it's only in forgiveness that your heart will soften again. If you can't forgive, if you refuse to forgive, that's where Jesus says, if you can't forgive the person, then you have to be able to walk away. But until you forgive that person, there will always be a wound on the heart. Number three, adultery wounds the children. And I've seen it blow up seemingly stable families. I have friends, dear friends, very close to me to deal with even if they don't know about it going on, guess what? It's affecting them. The lies, the deceit, the gamesmanship, what's going on there, it's affecting the kids. It's wreaking havoc on their lives. And even kids not yet born, it seeds something into the family. Many of you personally know that from generational pain and wounds from your own upbringings coming out of divorce or coming out of affairs that were even unspoken until you were older and discovered, heard about it. Matthew 8, don't hurt your kids. Adultery, it wounds the adulterer, it wounds the wrong spouse, it wounds the children. Number four, it wounds the church. It wounds the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. By the way, that's why church hurts are among the worst. People who have given up even going to church or being involved in church who have said no to the church because they've been hurt there, it's among the worst because church hurts are never in a vacuum. Church hurts affect the many. Church hurts hurt Everyone in that fellowship. Why? Because we learn together, we live together, we love together, we walk together, we worship together, we fellowship together. That's the whole idea of the church. And yet adultery blows holes in that community. When the husband and the wife go home and go, jerk, just another one of them 
sinner types. And I go home and my heart breaks. I just say, Lord, Jesus, only you can fix this. We need you here among us to fix this, to heal the wounds. Adultery wounds the church. You realize there's no other community in your life like the church. There's nothing else like it. And so it is in this community where there is a tenderness and an intimacy that those hurts can be so devastating. There is no community like this. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now, someone might say, well, whatever, then I'll just leave the bridge so you don't have to deal with it. I'm not talking about the bridge. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the whole church. Every Bible teaching, Jesus-loving church in Oak Harbor and Ann Cordes and all around us is the church. So I'm going to up and go from here, and I'm just going to go over there. You're just going to take the wounds with you. You're going to leave wounds behind here. You're going to take wounds over there. Rick, sounds like you're not giving us any options. I'm not. I'm not. But one, and it's coming, wounds of sin and adultery never just stay at that last place. They always come along. There is a spiritual dynamic. My life, sin would be a whole lot more tasteless. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt dear friends. I'm going to hurt my beloved. I'm going to hurt my family. If I follow this through, pause of grace. Do I really want to see this through? Knowing all of this wreckage and wounding that comes of it? Number five, adultery does damage the world. Listen, as of 2020, 90% of Americans considered infidelity to be immoral which is absolutely ironic to me. I read 90% consider infidelity to be immoral, and yet we watch TV shows, and that's all it's about. Something's disconnected in the way that we think. Whether it's the things that we read or, or watch or consume or our behaviors, 90% of Americans, and yet though 90% feel like or, or, or believe that infidelity is immoral and will say such, one in three men commit adultery, have extramarital affairs. One in three, 35%. One in six women, that's 17%, are having affairs right now. And those stats, listen to me, are consistent with the church. That's the thing that, that stuns me, I think, more than anything else, is when we talk about something like adulterous affairs, you would think, okay, in the world, one in three men, one in six men, between the sexual immorality outside of the church and the sexual immorality inside the church. Something's wrong. Something's missing. We're not processing. Listen to me, after becoming Christians, we remain here on earth for two reasons, just two. We've already got our salvation, and some have asked, why not when I give my life to Jesus, why don't I just go immediately home to be with him so I don't have to sin anymore? Hey, two reasons. One is your sanctification. You're saved, but God's still going to work on your heart, still going to work on your life, still going to work on my mind to take these sins out of the picture. Someone else's salvation that's the only reason I'm still standing here before you this morning and why I didn't jet out of here at the age of 10. My sanctification, and by the way, I think those of us who live a long time probably need more than those who don't live quite as long. <laughs> why am I still Lord here, Lord? Well, I'm still working on you, Rick. My sanctification is part of the deal, but it is also the salvation of the world around me. That's why I'm still here. That's why you're here. That's why the church is here. That's supposed to be our witness. And listen to me. Jesus says, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and brother in our marriages. Pause that blowing up your marriage 
blows up, at least for a time, it blows up your witness. It has impact on the cause of Christ. Brothers, love your wives. Yeah, but she, love your wives. But, but, but when she, brothers, love your wives. There is no caveat to that command. Wives, honor your husbands. But he, honor your husbands. Recognize first and foremost that your marriage is a witness of Christ in this world. It's his desire that the world look and see a church, a bride that functions differently than the rest of the world does. And I, I, it, it makes me so sad because I've watched throughout my lifetime, I have watched the, the church water down the message with some vain notion that we can get more people to come if we just are more tolerant of all kinds of sin. I told our, our, our shepherds this last week, when was the last time you heard a, heard a good hellfire and damnation sermon? When I was a kid, that was one of the complaints of the church. Well, they preach about hell all the time. That's not a complaint about the church anymore. I'm not saying that we should be all about condemnation and hell, but where do you even hear that anymore? Marvelous. Hey, the truth can hurt, but hurts can be healed. Love your wives, guys. Sisters, honor your husbands if for no other reason for Jesus' sake. Because number six, adultery wounds Jesus. Adultery is sin against God and against his design and against his desire for you. Adultery as if yeah, but he understands me better. Then help your husband understand you. I often tell Cheryl, could you explain that better to me? Because I just don't get women. I, I, I'm not, I don't think like that. Can you explain to me why what I said bothers you? You know, I'll just be sitting there and we'll be over dinner and I'll be like, but day, but day. <laughs> and if I was having coffee with Mike, he'd be like, well, doy, but doy, but doy back. <laughs> and we would communicate. But if I say that to my wife, she's like, I just can't even talk to you right now. <laughs> What'd I say? Well, I don't, I don't know. Help me. Help me be a, a better husband. Guys, have you ever asked your wife to do that? Would you help me be a, a better husband? Wives, have you ever said to your husband, help me to love you more? Because right now I ain't feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> The wounds are many, and I know it's hard to hear, and I didn't even want to go through this list. So I started jotting things down. I'm like, oh, man, wounds is eternal. We are not here to condemn We are here to fear God, yes, to pursue righteousness. Listen, adultery is no less sinful now than it was 50 years ago. Divorce has the same hurts now that it had 100 years ago. That stuff hasn't changed. And depending on where you're at in your relationship, and I'm truly speaking in the blind here, I'm not trying to target anybody. Understand that. I don't have a list of people in my office that are on the verge of adultery or, or divorce. I, But what I'm telling you is all of these things, you know, you know it's painful. You know it hurts. You know it tears you up inside. And the other person, and the children, and the church, and our Jesus. But his healing doesn't stop there. I don't condemn you. Tolerance for everyone. Do whatever. I don't condemn you. Go and no longer sin. Stop it. Just stop now. Thank God for the pause of grace. By the way, if she hadn't committed adultery, she would never have been in this situation. So as much as I side with this, uh, against the scribes and the Pharisees, as much I get, as I get angry with how they use her and abuse her, and I get my back up about these vile dudes who do this thing to her and try to get Jesus in the mix, it wouldn't happen if she hadn't been a party to it. She made a sin choice, which is why Jesus ends the whole exchange from now on so that Jesus saved her life. And not just from those jerks, but saved her life from her own sin. Go and sin no more. The thief made her 
in heaven. Actually, second to last question. <laughs> Will we meet her in heaven? Look, there she is, the adulterous woman. <laughs> I think we'll know her, but we'll know her as a sister. We'll know her as a forgiven saint. And like you and me, we will know her not as the adulteress, but as the bride. We will know her as the bride. And to every single one of us this morning, regardless of the position of your life or your behavior or your sin, right now, in this moment, in this pause of grace, Jesus would say to you, as he has said to me all week long, I want my bride. I want my bride. This is about you and Jesus. This is his desire for you. The bride. Last question. Why does adultery happen at all? And there's one word, thirst. It's thirst. Marriage seems dry. People get thirsty. They take a drink from what looks like a fresh spring, only to find ultimately that it's tainted water. And it makes you more thirsty than before. But it was Jesus who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink. phrase appears in the Bible seven times. Did you know that I only gave you six? Anybody catch that? I was just waiting for someone to go, um, that's only six. We'll see if anyone catches it second service. I doubt it because you guys are a whole lot brighter than they are. <laughs> I'm kidding. I say the same thing to them. I, I'm just messing around. Living water appears seven times. We looked at six of them. Here is number seven. You need to note this. Jot it down. The beloved is singing to his bride in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 8. That's the promise for the bride. And I know it. I get it. Some marriages are so dry. Some hearts are so broken. Some lives are so hardened by the wounds of sin that we don't know which way to turn. We don't know how to respond. We don't know how to move forward out of the position that we've gotten ourselves in. And then Jesus cries out to you, calls out to me, keep coming to me and keep drinking. Come get living water. I don't want to condemn you. That's not what this is about. This is about living water. And brothers and sisters, you don't need another book. You don't need more counseling. And you certainly don't need a new partner. And you don't need to stand condemned. You need the pause of grace in which you can come to Jesus and receive living water. You see, because grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will help us. I pray, Father, if there is anyone among us, this service or next, who is giving into or giving up to an adulterous relationship, that today it would end, that there would be a stop, that there would be conviction, and that there would be a turning to you, tearfully perhaps, Father, but a coming to you to receive living water that which can satisfy and that which is continual. Father, I pray for our marriages, not only in our bridge fellowship, but in the church. God, this, this, is, this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of relationship. This is, this is where we live out who we are and, and this is where sanctification and healing can really happen that they would know your love and be so satisfied by your love that then they can turn and honor their husbands. I pray for the husbands, Lord, that they can look at their wives and, and, and recognize the way that you have looked at us, the way that you love us, and we can love our wives that way. I pray for forgiveness, Father, for adultery. I pray for forgiveness for pornography. I pray for forgiveness here in this body, this day, this morning, for everyone struggling with such things that they could hear you say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, free by grace to go our way and sin no more. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.